Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Um, welcome to this talk with the absurdly ambitious title, <coughs> The Truth About Art. It's very good to see some familiar faces <coughs> in the company, and good in a different sense to see some new faces. Um, those of you who don't know me, my name's Patrick Dawley, and I normally teach art history programs in this department. Today, we're extending, or at least I'm extending my range into the treacherous field of philosophy. Um, truth is the field of philosophy, and philosophers have said quite a lot about art. Um, but I perhaps ought to say right from the word go that I'm adopting an art historian's um, approach to philosophy, putting things in a historical context. So I'm going to start by saying a few words about truth, um, then about art, and then I'm going to tackle the main theme of this first talk, mystery or mastery. That's not meant to be mysterious. It actually refers to Sir Ernst Gombrich's um, famous statement in, in the opening of his book, The Truth About Art. <laughs> not The Truth About Art, that's my book, I beg his pardon. Um, the Story of Art, um, which opens with the famous sentence, there really is no such thing as art. <clears throat> so that is the mystery. Um, the mastery is the answer he didn't give to the, the he said the art with a capital A um, doesn't exist, art with a little a does, and that is mastery. So that is the key to the, the, these two words. Um, the subtitle of my book, The Truth About Art, is Reclaiming Quality. Quality is the missing ingredient, I am going to suggest, that makes art into a mystery. <clears throat> Well, let's start by having a look at truth. <clears throat> this is truth. Um, it's not any old truth. It's the truth that presides over the ceremonial heart of the university. Um, the ceiling of the Sheldonian Theatre has um, all the arts and sciences looking up to heaven and appealing, imploring truth to come down and enlighten the university. And if you go to the Sheldonian, perhaps you could pop there at lunchtime and you look at the um, ceiling, this is what you'll see. Not quite as large as this, this is obviously um, taken close up. So you can see, um, I think it's a female figure, a li little bit ambiguous perhaps, but I think it's a female figure. She's holding a palm of victory in one hand and looking towards the sun. <coughs> Every undergraduate that matriculated in this university, um, whether they knew it or not, was under the eye of this personification of truth. And the personification, of course, is the key. This isn't truth. This is a painting of a personification of the concept of truth. And the cultural practice of personifying abstract concepts, we know, comes from the ancient Greeks. So... I'm going to have a quick look at a, um, a Greek work of art to help us place this approach to um, visual imagery in its historical context. Now, this is a very famous um, red figure painted pot, um, a crater. Uh, it shows the death of Sarpedon. It was for many years, no, well, for some years, in the Metro Metropolitan Museum in New York, and it had a, a slightly ambiguous pedigree. And um, more recently, the Metropolitan Museum has returned it to Italy, and you see it in the Villa Giulia in Rome today. Um, 
So this is a scene from the Iliad, um, book 16 of the Iliad, when the hero Sarpedon, who was Zeus's son, um, has been killed in battle. Now, Zeus knows everything. Uh, uh, gods know the past, the present, and the future. And he knew that his beloved son was going to be killed. And it grieved him, so he was sorely tempted to intervene. And his consort, Hera, um, was deeply unsettled by this. And she said to Zeus, well, you can do that if you like, but think of the example you're setting to the other gods. If they started intervening um, and saving their favorite mortals from um, death or other danger, the whole cosmos would become disorganized. Far better, um, Hera said, is to let Sarpedon fight, he will fall in battle, and then let death and sleep pick him up and carry him to his home in wide Lycia, where his kinsfolk will bury him with the proper ceremony and array, um, raise a monument over his tomb, as is proper for mortals. So that is what Zeus decides to do. And it's a wonderful image. Um, we know sleep as a condition which all animals have to adopt on a regular basis, and death is the cessation of life. Um, both are as real as real can be. But to talk about them as beings who can carry out instructions, that is a trick of language which is wonderful um, from the words of a poet. And the challenge to the painter, and this plot is signed by the painter Euphronius, a famous um, late 6th century BC Attic pot painter, the challenge was to um, make these beings visible. So you can see what he's done um, on the left and right. There are two hoplites dressed in contemporary armor of the 6th century BC with their helmets over their heads. They're winged, and that indicates that they're a little bit special. And coming out of the mouth of the one on the right, I don't know if you can read this, um, Thanatos, um, reading from right to left, that's death, and Hupnos from um, left to right, that sleep, they are lifting up the, um, the body of the hero Sarpedon. And what a wonderful body that is. This is a youth in all his um, beauty and strength, um, his quality, if you like, brought low in death, and his body, the beauty of his body and its obvious strength is expressing those qualities that have lost, been lost with his death. So it's a poignant image um, from a, um, a poignant passage in the Iliad which um, the, the pop painter has visualized. Now I'm going to invite you to think of truth in this context. context. Um, true, true or false as an adjective is an uncomplicated word. It qualifies a sentence or the answer to a question. Um, I'm standing while you're sitting. That is a true um, statement. Um, if you ask me, did I have coffee for breakfast, and I say yes, that is a true answer to your question. So true and false as adjectives don't present any philosophical problems, but truth as an abstraction, as a noun, has um, tormented philosophers for two and a half thousand years. Um, the earliest reference to it comes from the pre-Socratic Xenophanes of Colophon, and he said that no man has seen truth. Um, 
And if any of us happens to speak truth, we don't know it. How would we know if what we have spoken represents truth? It is um, a verbal conceit, perhaps, like um, death and sleep in um, Homer's image in the Iliad. Now, this was put very eloquently by a contemporary of um, the painter of the um, ceiling in the Sheldonian. Robert Streeter is the painter. He painted it um, in the late 1660s, finished by um, 1670. And this comes from Thomas Hobbes, um, the magnificent Hobbes who wrote the Leviathan in 1651. This was during the, um, the Great Rebellion, as it was called, the Civil War in England. And he said, um, true and false are attributes of speech, not of things. And where speech is not, there is neither truth nor falsehood. Words are wise men's counters. They do but reckon with them, but they are the money of fools. True and false belongs to the world of symbolic notation, to language. And I suspect that Hobbes has got this from Aristotle. Um, Aristotle is usually commenting on Plato and Socrates in many of his statements. And on this subject, he said that in, in practical matters, in the here and now, we have to be content to learn what is true about, about these things, roughly and in outline and for the most part. And he goes on to say, for it is the mark of an educated person to look for precision in each kind of inquiry just to the extent that the nature of the subject allows it. So you wouldn't expect, um, if you asked me, did I have uh, coffee for breakfast, for the kind of answer that you might get from mathematics, which is, as Aristotle said, um, a field in which things cannot be otherwise. Truth, um, Aristotle claimed, belongs to the field of theoretical knowledge, not um, the field of doing or making, in matters which cannot be otherwise. Um, and in, in, in subjects such as logic, metaphysics, mathematics, and natural science, we can establish knowledge which is universal, necessary, unchanging, separable from matter, involving proof and reason, and which can be taught. Um, that is the field of truth, not the practical um, situations that we encounter in daily life. And I think this was common in ancient societies um, before philosophy. Um, Socrates lived in the 5th century BC. Um, that statement from Xenophanes that no one has ever encountered truth dates from about 500 BC. Before then, truth isn't an issue. And I don't think it's an issue in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. Um, I'm showing you this reference from um, the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve going for the apple. Um, when um, God made paradise and made, I'm quoting now from Genesis, made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge. He didn't say of truth and falsehood. He said knowledge of good and evil. 
it's the realm of values which early poets and early um, religious um, teachers were concerned with. They wanted to instruct their peoples, their communities, in right conduct, how to behave rather than in verbal statements of truth or falsehood. It's in the New Testament that you have the concept of truth being introduced and St. Paul I think is the figure who does that. Um, the book of Galatians, his letters to the Galatians is possibly the first um, Christian document to survive and immediately is having a go at people for getting truth wrong. O oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Well, the poor Galatians didn't know what the truth was. Um, Paul had preached them his gospel, and it seems, if we read between the lines, that another group of apostles had arrived in Galatia and told them that they had to keep the Jewish law. And Paul's angle was that all they needed to do was believe his gospel, and um, that was his truth. But there was a fierce debate amongst the first Christians whether they had to follow the Jewish law or not. And if you put that in um, the realm of truth, there is no way of settling the argument. Um, that probably, Paul's letters are, were written before any of the Gospels. The last of the Gospels is probably St. John's Gospel. And it's there that truth really features throughout. Um, in fact, the Jesus in John's Gospel has a distinctive way of speaking. Um, we know it as verily, verily, I say, it unto you, I say unto you, Amen, Amen, legoi soi, um, is the Greek. Um, amen, Amen is the closest Hebrew word that I'm told exists to the equivalent of um, aletheia, truth, in um, Greek. And it's something like, um, it's an affirmation. Um, certainly. And there's an even more um, evocative passage when Christ is before Pilate. Um, Pilate asked him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king, for, for this I was born and for this I came in, into the world to testify to the truth. And then Pilate asks him this very big question, what is truth? And we're on the edge of our chairs. We're dying for an answer. Answer this and 2,000 years of philosophy would be settled. But it's a rhetorical question. Um, Pilate is saying, what is truth? As if no one can tell us what truth is. There is no answer and that is what the writer of John's Gospel, I think, um, had assumed. It's a rhetorical question. So, <clears throat> Truth as an abstract con concept, I think, is problematic. Um, true and false as adjectives, qualifying statements and questions, I think, is straightforward. Um, let's now shift to the question of art, the truth about art. Um, if you go into the Sheldonian and you look up at the ceiling, this is the larger um, canvas or the series of canvases that you see. So we were looking at the little detail in the, in the center of the ceiling, uh, the figure of truth, and surrounding truth are all the arts and the sciences. Uh, we have a wonderful description by one Dr. Plot, um, written in the 1670s, a description of Oxfordshire in which he describes the ceiling. And the conceit clearly is that this is an open-air 
um, theatre. People knew that Roman theatres were open to the skies, so the framework, the timber framework, has been cut to look like rope. And there's a, a velarium, uh, an awning that could be dragged over the ropes to protect the spectators from the sun, from direct light from the sun. So the awning has been um, drawn back, revealing the heavens above. And these are all the arts and the sciences, according to Dr. Plot. But they are not the arts that we would um, refer to as arts. And in fact, Dr. Plot doesn't distinguish arts from sciences. They, they include <coughs> what in the, liberal, in the Middle Ages were referred to as liberal arts. Um, if I zoom in a little bit and look at the bottom here, um, this is the figure of, of law or justice. Um, she is seat, seated with a scepter, and this is the figure of rhetoric on her side. Th these are arts, apparently, or are they sciences? We don't know. Rhetoric traditionally was an, uh, was a, was an art, the art of persuasion. And you look at that rather buxom young woman, bare-chested, and you can think that um, an Oxford undergraduate in 1670 would be immediately persuaded by that art of rhetoric. <coughs> um, strangely, Above her, there is the art of printing. Um, we're actually looking at printing's armpit there and looking up, up printing's nostrils. It's a personification of printing. Law needed printed texts, and it needs the fasces there to enforce its judgments. Um, architecture features on the left here. There's a Corinthian capital and a plumb line and an architect's square and a pair of dividers. Um, architecture was not uh, an art taught in, in the university, as indeed it, it isn't today. Um, perhaps it got in because Sir Christopher Wren obviously designed the Sheldonian and that gave it a certain prestige. If we walk around <clears throat> and look up to the central figure here, this is theology. Um, the queen of the sciences, according to medieval assumptions, um, she is um, flanked by um, the Jewish law and the Christian Gospels. And this is history. Um, I'm glad to see that history is looking at truth. <laughs> She's got her, um, her pen, her, her, her quill pen raised, um, being guided by truth. And every historian needs uh, a research assistant. <laughs> there is a little... Um, Dr. Plot referred to them as genie, which is the word for a spirit. Our word genius obviously comes from the Latin word for a spirit, but at this state, it still referred to a spirit. It didn't mean for a super-talented individual. So these arts and sciences include theology, law, um, rhetoric, arithmetic, geometry, astrology, music. The arts that we uh, um, assume we, we have as our reference when we're talking about the arts are actually what in the 18th century were defined as the fine arts, the beaux-arts, and painting, sculpture, and architecture, um, music, and literature. They had not yet been codified. So there are conventions involved here, and history can separate out when particular conventions are adopted. In antiquity, the philosophers muddled up the, um, the sciences and the arts. They thought of, uh, the philosophers thought of them as bodies of knowledge.
And I'm suggesting to you that before the philosophers, every activity was an art insofar it could be done well or badly. That's going to be my thesis. Well, where is Streeter's art in this ceiling? Streeter is the painter who's painted it. Um, he doesn't feature. Painting is not one of the arts looking up to truth. Um, we suspect that Robert Streeter looked at um, a sort of Wikipedia for his personifications, a uh, 17th century um, Wikipedia. This is Econologia, um, a, a textbook of different personifications, and this is the one for truth, Verita. And there you can see um, an almost nude figure holding a palm, just like um, Streeter's um, Truth is holding a, a palm frond and looking at the sun. And the text says, Una bellissima donna ignuda, um, most beautiful um, nude woman, and it tells us something about um, her qualities. Streeter's art is to transform the engraving which you see on the left into the painting you see on the right. It's an invisible art if you haven't got your concepts ready to see them. It's not a personification, it's how he does something. Um, art is a Latin word for skill. And Streeter has taken a standing figure resting one hand, sorry, one foot on the globe into this seated figure foreshortened from a very acute angle so that we can be looking up at her and the arts um, surrounding her can be looking up at her. And we know from George Virtue, who was an 18th century collector of anecdotes of English painters, that this was Streeter's um, famous um, ability, um, perspective and foreshortening. Um, Virtue referred to him as a complete master in these particular skills. And we suspect that he would have used um, a device such as um, Dura illustrated here, a frame with a, um, a transparent fine fabric with threads creating a grid, an equivalent um, grid on a piece of paper, so that with your eye in a fixed position, you can trace the outlines of a figure where it crosses the grid and transfer them to your um, paper like that. And that's how he got his foreshortening right. We suspect, obviously, we don't actually know. That is a skill. Um, it doesn't need a personification. You recognize it if you have the right reference. Well, um, we shift from that to the question of mystery. Why did this become mysterious? Why is a skill, something that can be done well or badly, so problematic? And I think that the philosophers have something to be answered um, for here. And in particular, um, Plato and Plato-Socrates. This is the famous statement from the Apology, um, Socrates' defense when he was on trial for his life in 399 BC. Um, Socrates, 70 years old, facing um, the jury of 501 citizens of Athens, and he has to put up his defense. And this is the statement that we are often um, quoted. It is the greatest good for a man to discuss virtue every day, for the unexamined life is not worth living. Now that clearly is taken out of context. Um, there's a larger context here in which um, Socrates asks, 
why don't you just shut up? Um, if you just keep quiet and stop pestering people about what is virtue, um, let the craftsmen, let the sophists and the rhetoricians get on with their jobs, leave people in, police, in, in peace, um, there'll be no trouble. But you keep going around pestering people. And Socrates, this is Socrates' answer. He can't, he says, um, stop asking this, this question, or he would be disobeying the god. <clears throat> and by the god, he might mean um, the uh, Apollo in Delphi, who said that Socrates was the wisest of men, or it could be his own daimon, his own inner genius, his conscience, we might say. And the larger text, he says, I can't disobey the god, so I, I've got to keep asking these questions. Um, even though you don't believe me that I've got a God telling me this, this is the case. And if I say that it is the greatest good for a man to discuss arete every day, and those other things about which you hear me conversing and testing myself and others, for the unexamined life is not worth living for men, you will believe me even less. This is a very odd thing to do, and Socrates is telling the jury of 501 citizens that you, you won't believe this, but this is what I think I have to do. Discuss arete every day. So the question is, what does arete mean? It's traditionally translated as virtue, because when it was first translated into Latin, it was translated as virtus, um, which is um, a Latin word, which has become our modern virtue, but we reserve it for moral excellence, <clears throat> and the ancient Romans used it for excellence across the board. Um, and that is one of the roots of the, con the confusion. Um, modern translation, translators of Plato and Aristotle very often use excellence for arete. They, they've dropped virtue and they use excellence. But I don't think that quite works, <clears throat> because why would Socrates go around Athens asking people what excellence is? It's not difficult. Excellence is a, a superlative. <clears throat> And if you ask a potter what excellence is, and you say, well, it's the best possible pot I could, I could produce. And if we had a pot competition, and the best pot would be excellent. Is that so difficult? Does he have to spend his life asking people what excellence is? So I suspect there's a bit more to it than that. And the key has, in my judgment, come from this celebrated book, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by Robert Persick. Published in 1974 and ignored over the last how many years it is, 40 odd years, by philosophers, art historians, and academics. Um, so we're going to give it a little bit of attention today. The um, theme of Persig's book is not Zen, not Zen Buddhism, and it's not motorcycle maintenance. The key is in the subtitle. It's an inquiry into values. And values is what the author of um, Genesis was concerned with. And values is what Homer is concerned with. The difference between the good and the bad. Um, Persig is not concerned with truth and falsehood. He's concerned with the good and the bad. And the story that he tells, we haven't got time, obviously, to go into it, but the, 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 the key moment was when he was teaching English composition in a teaching um, college in America, and one of his senior colleagues 
um, said to him, I hope you're teaching quality. And he said, sure, um, I'm certainly teaching quality. Um, everyone would have answered in the same way. But then Persig asked, him, asked himself, what, did it, he had, what is meant by quality? And being um, an extremely in, intelligent individual, very highly educated, um, brought up in universities, his father was a dean of law in a university, and as a child he sat in on all the lectures um, in, a, in the university, extremely well educated, extremely intelligent. He wouldn't let go on this question, what is quality? And at a key moment he referred to the um, platonic dialogues. Pop quality into the answer and the meaning of the Platonic Dialogues is transformed. So let's read um, Socrates' statement to the jury again. If I say that the greatest good for a man is to, dis is to discuss quality every day, um, and those other things which you hear me conversing and testing myself and others for the unexamined life is not worth living for men, you will believe me in even less. They will believe him even less, not because they're uninterested in quality. Arete is the key value in Homeric Greece, and Homer set the standard, the values for Greeks in the archaic and classical period. The odd thing is to go about discussing it rather than just doing it. <clears throat> if you're a potter or a soldier or a public speaker or a um, um, a helmsman sailing a ship, you want to get things right and you're concerned with quality. It is wanting to define it, to discuss it, to put it into words, which was odd in um, Socrates' conduct. Socrates wanted to pin it down with knowledge and to make, put it into words, and that doesn't work. So let's um, see if we can discover the meaning of arete by looking at earlier text. Um, Homer, obviously, uh, in particular. Um, this is um, a passage from Book 8 in the Iliad. Hector is retiring um, for the day and he's um, addressing the Trojans about the following day's encounter. So he says that in the following day, I will know whether the son of Tudius, mighty Diomedes, will thrust me back from the ships to the wall, or whether I will slay him with the bronze and carry off his blood-stained spoil. Tomorrow he will come to know his quality, whether he can face the approach of my spear. You wouldn't use virtue for quality there. Um, you could use excellence. Um, you could use a number of words, but quality is an all-embracing word. It's not just courage, it's not just skill, it's everything. I think quality in that context works um, particularly well. But it isn't just heroes fighting in battle that Homer uses the word arete for. Um, this is Penelope. Um, Penelope had been left by Odysseus um, for ten years when he was fighting in the Trojan War, and ten more years when he was trying to find his way home and kept getting lost. So Penelope is surrounded by suitors who want to marry her, and a suitor says of, Pen of Penelope, we on our part are waiting here day after day, continue our rivalry for that quality of hers. And do not go after other women whom each one could fitly wed. What is the quality that was important for a woman in this early 
period of Greek history, the, the sort of colonizing period, probably the 8th century um, BC. Well, this was a great seafaring culture. The Greeks were expanding all over the Mediterranean, setting up trading posts and colonies. So husbands would be away from their wives for years at a time. And obviously they could have shipwrecks and they could die and they could um, never come back. How long is a woman to wait for her husband in those circumstances? Um, well, a couple of years, perhaps, perhaps three or four years. I don't know, a very loyal um, wife might wait four or five. Um, but she has a young son, and her father is, uh, sorry, her stepfather is too old to protect her. She has flocks, she has sheep, she has swine, she has property, which is attractive for other men. And she's obviously vulnerable, and she's a target. So how long does she hold out for? Well, Penelope held out for ten years while Odysseus was fighting, and she's held out for ten more years while he's trying to get home. And her quality is such that they are still um, clustering around her, as moths might cluster around a candle. And this was a quality held up by Homer um, to be admired by his audience. Um, you read Homer with, with an eye to this, and you find that this is what Homer cares about most. It is quality that concerns him. So um, Odysseus has a swine herd, <clears throat> and he looks after his swine for 20 years, and the suitors are eating up his, um, his pigs. Um, and when Odysseus finally returns, you, you remember that he's in disguise, and he sees his old dog. You remember that rather wonderful episode, Argos? And it, he was a wonderful hunting dog, um, fleet of foot, um, strong, loyal. And he sees this old dog, and he's a mangy, old, neglected creature on a compost heap. And um, Odysseus is shocked to see Argos in that condition. And Argos, of course, um, recognizes Odysseus. He's the only one who recognizes his master. Um, and Odysseus says to Eumaeus, his swineherd, how, how could they have neglected Argos in this way? And um, Eumaeus explains that it's the, the, the slave women in the household who are looking after him, or supposed to be looking after him. And then he says, for Zeus, whose voice is born afar, takes away half the quality from a man when the day of slavery comes upon him. These are slaves who are looking after the dog, and they just do what they're told. They don't use their judgment. If they're told just to give him some scraps, that's what they do. They don't care. And surely you can apply this across the board. How many of us are, have been in a situation in which we're not allowed to use our judgment? We just have to um, meet targets or meet outputs. Um, the, is it the barristers who were on strike yesterday because they don't like the new arrangements? When they can't use their judgment to serve their clients, they've got to um, deliver within a particular budget, within a particular time frame. So it's a, a kind of form of slavery. That is what destroys people. I think that is what Homer is saying there. Um, we move on a little bit later to Hesiod. Um, 
perhaps a century or so after Homer, obviously we don't know exactly, and he uh, makes this very famous remark, badness can be got easily and in shoals. The road, the road to her is smooth and she lives very near us. But between us and quality, the gods have placed placed the sweat of our brows. Long and steep is the path that leads to her, and it is rough at first. But when a man has reached the top, then she is easy to reach, though before she was hard. You, can, you, you wouldn't translate um, arete as courage or um, various other words that have been used. I suppose you might um, translate it as virtue. But virtue is a rather more specialist word. Quality is being good at whatever it is that you have to do. And I think it fits this passage very nicely. Why am I talking about this in, um, on a day in which our theme is the truth about art? Well, this is a connection which Persig also has taught us. The Latin word art, which I say I've always been able to translate as skill, and, and the um, translation works very well, has an Indo-European Indo root, A-R-T, which appears in Latin as ars and in Greek as arete. It's the same root. In Germanic languages, it reappears as recht or right. And I believe that in Sanskrit, it reappears as the word, I don't know how you pronounce it, rita, I say. All these words have a common ancient, preliterate, in the proto-European root, A-R-T. Right is something that's very important to us, and we don't go around defining it because it is so various. Right in one context wouldn't be right in another context. And it's not just a context, it's a time and a place. And the particular situation. It is particular, it, it can't be generalized. And that applies for arete and for ours. Um, and above all, <laughs> it applies, the, the, the point that Persig makes, and I think Homer makes it too, is that you can't put quality into words. You can't put the beauty of a young woman into words. How many poets um, have tried to say, to describe their beloved in words and failed? And the most famous beauty of all, Helen of Troy, um, how did she become so famous as a beauty? Homer never describes her. The closest he comes is this particular passage when the old men of Troy are on the walls of Troy looking at, down at the battle and Helen approaches her, sorry, Helen approaches them and softly the old men of Troy spoke winged words to one another. Small blame that Trojans and well-grieved Archaeans should for such a woman suffer long suffer woes. She is terribly like an immortal goddess to look on. It's old men who are saying this, presumably those whose um, sort of um, sexual appetites are a little bit cooler than that of younger men, and even they um, recognize the extraordinary beauty of Helen. And that is enough for Homer to have established Helen's wonderful beauty. You can't define beauty um, any more than you can define quality. And this is what um, Persig taught us in Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Um, quality can't be defined because it's too various. Um, it's, ign 
it's neglected by scholars, art historians for example, they, they don't often talk about quality in painting, sculpture and architecture because they know that historically standards have changed, tastes have changed and they're not sure whether it's subjective or objective. Um, famously, the figure of truth on the ceiling of the Sheldonian Theatre um, was described by a fellow of Merton in a long poem, only the last two lines are memorable, um, describing Streeter's truth, um, this Robert Whitehall says, future ages must confess they owe to Streeter more than Michelangelo. Um, you can say that if you've never seen Michelangelo. If you have seen Michelangelo, you realize that Streeter isn't quite up to that standard. So quality varies. It's not objective. And therefore, um, the alternative which we have today is that it's subjective. And again, Persick said it's, it's not subjective or objective. And when we are wrapped up in a good book, we don't feel self-conscious. We lose ourselves in a book, that's what we say. If you're caught up in a wonderful film or a play, um, you're not aware of subject and object. Subject and object dissolve in the experience of quality. Um, so this is what he says, when the subject becomes aware of the object, quality describes the relationship that binds them. It is not one thing or the other, it's when the two come together that you have the quality experience. And that's why you can't pin it down on one side or the other. And he then goes on to say, it's not a thing. It is an event, it is an occasion. Um, when you're wanting your coffee for breakfast, the aroma of freshly ground coffee may be mm, marvellous and you've had your coffee and you've had your breakfast and then you smell coffee again and it's the last thing you want. Um, you've moved on from that particular moment. It is a particular event. And this I, I found personally most useful statement. Um, quality is the response of an organism to its environment. Every organism has to exist in a physical environment and if it succeeds it finds nourishment, it avoids danger and it reproduces. And quality describes that relationship to the environment. The organism responds not to truth or falsehood because that's a, a symbolic form of notation, it responds to the good and bad and quality contains the good and the bad. And this is, again, Persig, art is high-quality endeavor. The way I like to put it, art is any activity that can be done well or badly, and the art lies in doing it well. And once you've established that, many of the problems that attend our understanding of art and the history of art fall away. So, we go back to um, Socrates um, on trial for his life, in his defense, and this is the translation that came across to um, Western Europe in the Renaissance. Um, Marsilio Ficino is the first person to translate Plato into Latin, the, the complete works that is. And he said, if I say that the greatest good for a man is to, is to discuss quality every day, and you can see the Greek there, peri aretes tus logus poiestai, 
Um, Ficino put that into Latin, de virtute verba facere, um, to make words every day, exactly what the Greek says. Um, that is where the word virtue was introduced to, for our understanding of arete, and that is what's made um, the Socratic dialogues opaque to us. Um, see it as quality and they become clear. Now, the word um, virtue has a history a little bit like the word arete. This is how Julius Caesar uses virtue. He's talking about an encounter in the beginning of the Civil War. Um, about 70 of our men were killed in the first engagement. Amongst them, Quintus Fulginius, the leading centurion of the 14th Legion, who had been raised from the lower orders on accounts of his outstanding courage, is the Penguin translation, that virtutem um, is what um, Caesar wrote. And quality, again, I think is a good translation. It's not just courage, it is skill, it's the ability to command, to um, retain the respect of his men and his peers. All those qualities um, made an ordinary legionary um, become a leading centurion. Um, and then the word virtue is transferred to painting. Um, this is Pliny's Natural History is our main source of ancient painting. He's talking about um, the Roman general who sacked Corinth in 146 BC. Um, and selling off the booty, um, they sold a painting for 600,000 denarii. And the price surprised Mummius, who suspecting there must be some virtue, quality in the picture, of which he was himself unaware, had the picture called back and um, placed it in, made it public property. And um, quality, again, I think works very well for virtutis. And in the Renaissance, um, my own home ground, um, Giorgio Vasari's Lives of the Most Excellent Painters, Sculptors and Architects is our um, key reference. Um, the one thing that Vasari cares about above all others is virtu. And for years it's been regarded as almost untranslatable. We don't have an equivalent for it. Um, but he says um, he doesn't have the category art. Um, he, he can't refer to his masters or his artificers as, as artists because that's not the culture. And the general word art doesn't mean painting, sculpture, and architecture. So he has to try and find out what do they have in common. And he decides it's drawing that they have in common. I say then that sculpture and painting are in truth sisters, born from the, the one father, which is disegno at one and the same birth, and have no precedence one over the other, except inasmuch as the quality and force of those who practice them make one artificer surpass another. The quality is what he's trying to teach us in his lives of the most excellent painters. And if you can detect quality in a work of art, you are a virtuoso. It's a word that's used not only for the virtuoso practitioner, but for the connoisseur who can make quality judgments. That is what um, Vasari is trying to teach us. Well, um, we're supposed to finish at 11 o'clock. I'm clattering on because I want to show you some examples. I'm sure you're, you've seen enough text and you want to have some examples. Um, my examples I'm, I'm going to draw are actually from architecture, which don't have some of the issues that attend painting and sculpture. So this is um, Streeter's ceiling, um, the um, detail which shows architecture with the Corinthian capital, um, the plumb line you can see, 
um, if I find my mouse, there's the plumb line, and there's the um, set, set square, set square, architect square. Um, if you were to look closely at these faces, I don't think you would say that Streeter is as good as Michelangelo, would you? He's got a formula. He applies a formula. He, he paints the darks, and then he adds the midtones, then he adds the high highlights, and it works very well. No doubt he, he could work at speed. And he's very keen to show off his skill at foreshortening. So you look up um, the nostrils of some of his figures or see the underside of their feet, and that's all well and good. Um, but if you have a higher, ref a higher standard as a reference point, um, he doesn't compete. So in the field of architecture, um, how do we form judgments? Well, Vitruvius is our only ancient writer on architecture, a Roman architect living in the late 1st century BC. Um, he's probably read Greek textbooks <coughs> which are inaccessible to us, they've long disappeared, and he's borrowed these three principles. And Vitruvius writes, architecture must be conducted according to the principles of firmitas, utilitas, and benustas, solidity, utility, and beauty. Um, once you read it, it makes sense, doesn't it? Um, a building has to be solid. It has to withstand um, wind and rain. It has to be a useful building. The rooms have to be arranged in a useful way, so the kitchens and the um, bathrooms are useful, or in a public building, the, the health and safety regulations are satisfied. And it has to be beautiful. If it's not beautiful, it's a building, but it's not architecture. The very word architecture, um, from the Greek archon and tecton, archon is a master, tecton is building. Um, Nicholas Pevsner famous made the distinction um, between architecture and building. He says, a bicycle sh he said, a bicycle shed is a building, um, Lincoln Cathedral is a piece of architecture. Lincoln Cathedral has um, a range of references that bring it into the realm of beauty, as well as um, being uh, solid, it's withstood wind and rain for many centuries, and within the context of um, Christian faith and a, a, as a great cathedral, um, it has its utility too. I have to say that um, bicycle sheds are useful too, and I once found an architectural award um, for an Australian architectural practice. They won an award for a bicycle shed. So if you design a really substantial, I mean, a, a bicycle shed that is useful, that does its job, and is beautiful, that also becomes architecture. Well, um, on your sheet, you will see that I've got a few um, examples, and I want to keep things as simple as possible. So I'm referring to columns, not just columns, but the basis of columns. This is the um, temple um, at Horiyuji in, in Nara in Japan. It dates from about 700 um, AD, we're told. Um, it's a fascinating temple in many re respects. Um, architectural historians and historians of religion would have a lot to say about it. Um, it has a social function, it has a religious function, it has a cultural function. There are um, an awful lot of 
angles you could approach it uh, by to appreciate it. But what struck me looking at these timber columns, they're resting on stone bases, and presumably those stone bases are acting as a damp course. Um, wood will rot if it's allowed to be damp for long periods, so putting it on a stone base um, stops it rotting. Um, but to my surprise when I was looking at this, the stones didn't seem to be flat. They were irregular bases. And when you think about it, um, that poses a challenge to the carpenter who's erecting the post because the post has to sit firmly on the base. If you have one brick resting directly on another brick, those bricks could be touching just on three points, and that meant that there would be stresses in the brick, and the point of mortar, we're told, is not to stick bricks together, it's to keep them apart so that the entire surface of one brick should be resting on the <coughs> entire surface of the brick below. If you have an irregular base, how do you get the base of the timber post to fit it exactly? And I don't know, and I hope I've not... Um, misinterpret this. I looked at, there were other parts of this um, wonderful temple which had bases and they all seem to be irregular to me. I don't know how it was done, but presumably there is an art to doing it. And um, a master, a Japanese master craftsman, a carpenter, um, must have worked out a way of doing it and passed it on to his apprentice, apprentices. And so it became a tradition, a, a living tradition, um, the architecture, the master building of these columns must have involved knowing how to erect a post on an irregular base so that it sat firmly on that irregular base. This is to do with, it has to be upright to be solid, um, it has to be um, useful, it has to be solid, and it should be handsome. Well, um, the Greeks have the same problem. Um, Greek architecture, in, the forms of Greek architecture were all established when they built in timber. None of those have survived, but the timber structures are petrified, if you like, in the stone temples that were built from 600 onwards. Now, this is the remains of the archaic temple of Hera on the island of Samos. When you see these columns re-erected, they've been re-erected by archaeologists. The um, column drums are lying scattered around and they just pile one up um, on top of the other to give us a feel of the scale of the original temple. And look at the base of these columns. Um, you have two bases, if you like, a separate piece of stone um, with a base that is concave in profile and it has these grooves very precisely cut. <coughs> Um, and then above that, the, the base of the column, of the shaft rather, it has a convex um, profile and a slightly different sequence of grooves. And the precision with which these grooves are marked is very striking. Um, the Greek word cosmos was applied to um, the, 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 the whole, the universe, by Pythagoras, we are told. And Pythagoras, of course, came from Samos. Um, and the word cosmos meant order, and it also meant beauty. If, if you have your phalanx of fighters fighting in order, that is cosmos. It has both order and it has beauty. And our modern word cosmetics comes from the same root. It's how you arrange your 
face um, so that it should show off to best advantage. Um, the Greeks, unlike the Japanese, had a completely flat surface and then they had their own damp course, which is this base, and they worked it so that it could be completely regular. And perhaps their um, reference was a pot turned on a, on a wheel, which gives you a perfectly um, circular outline and you can paint grooves on it, not grooves, but you could paint um, bands on it and this maybe was transferred to stone. Um, now I remind you, um, Pythagoras comes from Samos, this is the famous um, discovery by Pythagoras that the square on the hypotenuse is equal to the sum of the square on the other two sides. Vitruvius refers to this and he says this is the way you demonstrate it. You, do, you don't need to demonstrate it with numbers, you demonstrate it with geometry. And you just count up the squares and you can see that um, there are 25 on the hypotenuse, you add up the other two and it also comes to 25. And Vitruvius said that um, Pythagoras was so overwhelmed by this discovery that he sacrificed an ox um, to the god who must have given him the insight. Um, Vitruvius also um, talks about how do you double a circle. He says you can't do it mathematically I mean, with numbers. Um, because if you were to extend the, a square in a certain direction, you won't get to, this, to the same number of units um, on a double-sized square than you will of a single-sized square. But you can do it easily, geometrically, by taking a diagonal of the square and making that the, the size of your new square, which is going to be double the size of the old. So the Greek obsession with geometry could have been um, fired off by the architects who were building these Greek temples in stone and using geometry, because we know that they wrote books about their temples, and what, were, what are they going to write in their books if it's not the geometry that was involved in um, shaping the, the columns and the capitals and the entablatures that we see. And the other thing that strikes you uh, about Greek architecture is that it's optimized to be seen from a particular position. This is obviously the Acropolis in Athens, seen from the site of assembly. Now, I don't know whether Socrates was tried by his 501 jurors from this location, but when you look from the assembly to the Acropolis, you're looking exactly along the axis to the propyleon, um, the gate to the um, Acropolis. And the Parthenon is seen um, from the short end, and you just see a certain amount of the, of the long end. And the little temple of Athena Nike, you can see at a slight angle. It all looks exactly right. And I can't help, see, I can't imagine that this is a coincidence. This surely is the optimal view. And I'm astonished that uh, this doesn't seem to be the view that's very often photographed. I had to use one of my own Kodachrome slides to scan in to show you this, because I couldn't find it anywhere else. <coughs> So it's a relationship, the classical Greeks, a relationship with the viewer and the object. They adjusted the shape of large statues so that they should look good from an acute angle. And you look at the column bases in the Propyleon. Um, these are Doric. Um, Doric columns don't have bases because they rest on a stone stylobate, um, the, the top step of the platform. And if that stylobate is, is stone, you don't need a damp course because the damp course is already there in the stone. 
um, wonderfully precisely constructed. This is a beauty that was um, worked out in wood and then preserved in stone because that is, was a tradition which they respected. And just inside the Propylion you can see that they are Ionic bases and these are the Athenian um, style bases which become classic. Um, you can see that the lower half has got a convex profile, that's the, um, the torus, Vitruvius gives us the terms, the, the concave, the scotia and the torus again. The lower one extending a little bit further out from the upper one. The upper one here has grooves, the lower one doesn't. This becomes such a satisfactory formula that it has been repeated ever since. Um, it is a classic because it seems to be expressive of its function. You would feel that the weight of that column is squeezing out <laughs> the, um, the base as if it was some kind of um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Some sort of plastic material that is yielding to, to the pressure of the weight above it. And that seems exactly right. Um, and then I'm switching to um, Normandy in the Middle Ages. Um, this is the Abbey Church of Bernay, which dates from the 11th century, very early stone church. Um, very simply cut, as you can see, but it isn't just building, it is architecture, because you have a pier on the right, so this is clearly a half column, and you have a base. Now, however simply it's cut, the master masons who were doing this had clearly looked at Roman um, structures and were borrowing Roman forms, and the Roman forms told them that a column had a base, and so that's what they've inserted there. And having mastered how to do this, the next generation of masons would have wanted to improve on their masters. And this is the dynamic, I think, of artistic traditions. You want to achieve quality. You are striving to do something better than as well as you can. You're striving for excellence. So over a couple of centuries, um, generations of Norman Masons must have worked on similar projects like this. So by the time we come to the cathedral in Coutances in the 13th century, you have these clusters of shafts um, terminating at these um, very expressive bases on little um, flat platforms like, a, like an abacus and raised on a much higher um, pedestal, there is a richness and a complexity to this and a logic to it, each of these shafts spreading out for the ribs for the vaulting above, which is very rewarding. And no doubt contemporaries seeing this would have had the earlier um, bases as their reference point, so they would have admired the excellence, the quality which they see here. And every bishop wanted his cathedral to stand out um, against the competition. And then we sh switch to the 15th century. This is the choir of the Abbey Church at Mont Saint-Michel. Um, in hard granite, very hard stone to work, and you can see blocks of granite have been assembled together, and this extraordinary complex moulding has been applied across the various blocks. So you have um, convex, concave, then come into a ridge, then a little 
um, platform, then a, a round moulding above that, and then the base of the shafts with all sorts of embellishments and enrichment to it that generations of masons have added um, to impress their clients and impress their um, contemporaries. It is quality that's driving what they do. And I think every artistic tradition works like this. You go from early simplicity to sophistication to great complexity, and it becomes so complex that the next generation gives up and starts again doing something rather different. Um, just to give you a quick glimpse of the overall church, very simple Abbey Church of Bernay, that was the first one. Um, very complex um, 13th century Gothic with flying buttresses and um, large windows. And the magnificent choir of the Abbey Church of Mont Saint Michel. This is the early Romanesque church you can see on the left, and the 15th century choir added to it. Now, um, I return to Plato. Plato, if you like, is the person who introduced the mystery. Um, Plato and Socrates' absolute value is not truth. Even though they are seeking for truth, their value is arete. This is what um, Socrates was questing for. Um, all his interrogations of the poets and the sophists and the rhetoricians was asking them what quality was. And a simpler word they use is the good. And they use the word good as a noun, not as an adjective, as a, as a good dinner or a good lecture or a good whatever. They, they talk about the good. And in the Republic, um, Socrates is challenged to tell people what the good is. And he says, it's too difficult to say what, what the good is, um, but I can say what it's like. And he has this famous image of the cave. And if you Google Plato's cave, you come up with all sorts of nasty illustrations of it. Um, this is a, an illustration dating from about 1600, um, in which um, the image of the good and the light is um, conflated with St. John's Gospel. This is actually from John's Gospel. Lux venit in mundum et delixerunt homines magis tenebras quam lucem something. Um, light came into the world and men preferred darkness to the light. Um, so that's Christianizing the story. But um, Plato's narrative has the many, the, the, the populace, us if you like, um, in this dark cave looking at shadows on the wall and that is our um, experience of the, the world of the senses. We're just looking at shadows of the real. Um, philosophers are actually in a bit more light than the rest of us, and they see the originals which are generating the shadows. But if you study for 15 years philosophy, you can actually get out of the cave, and then you're in the sunlight. And in the sunlight, you see truth. You see the world. And when you first get out there, it's so blazing that you, you're blinded but you, at night you will see the night sky and you will wonder at its beauty and then when the sun comes up um, you will see truth but the source of truth is the sun and the sun is his image for the good um, this is where truth gets truth from um, truth here the, the arts and sciences on the Sheldon scene are looking to truth. Where does truth get truth from? He gets it from the good, and the good in Plato's image is the sun. The good, the value of good and bad, is primary. Um, truth is our 
symbolic notation of it which works very well in mathematics and logic and um, some subjects but in the here and now um, the good and bad is our, our guide to getting through life um, from the moment you wake up to the moment you sit down in the lecture or even where you sit in the lecture you're judging what is good and bad place to sit um, that is fundamental and of overriding importance Right, thank you very much. Um, I've, we've got ten minutes before our coffee break, so if there are any questions, this is a very good time to take them. Well, <clears throat> welcome back. Um, we were talking at lunch as to what, what is a good lunch. I hope you had a good lunch, but I hope you, don't ha you didn't have too good a lunch, because if you had wine and a soup and a meal and a pudding and cheese and coffee and chocolate and heaven knows what else, you'll be feeling very comfortable at the moment, and that means that you may be nodding off. The lecture spot after lunch is always the, 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 the one that everyone uh, lecturers want to avoid. <clears throat> So I hope you did have a good lunch. <clears throat> um, our subject this afternoon is aesthetics. And aesthetics is a branch of philosophy. It's a sub-discipline of philosophy. And I'm not a philosopher, so you wouldn't expect me to talk to you about philosophy. I'm talking about aesthetics from the point of view of an art historian. In other words, putting aesthetics in its historical context. Because having read a little bit about um, aesthetics, Kant and Hegel, as well as Plato and Aristotle, I realized how profoundly philosophers have formed our attitudes to art with a capital A and the fine arts in, um, in particular. We can't really understand our own thoughts until we have understood what the philosophers have said about it. And this goes for the practicing fine artists. A lot of the things which they think they should be doing, they think that because the philosophers have told them that that's what they are doing. And so we're in a circle. Um, philosophers make things up, if I can put it that way, and then fine artists do what the philosophers tell them. So, um, the division was most clearly made by Hegel in his lectures on aesthetics. He delivered these um, in Berlin in the 1820s. He never wrote them down, but his, there was a devoted pupil who had his lecture notes, and with his own lecture notes, they compiled a, a composite text, and this was published in 1835 as, as his Vorelesung über Ästhetique. And that was translated into French in a multiple volume publication in the 1840s, and it reached the English-speaking world in the late 19th century. Um, Hegel, in his introduction, made this division between Kunstwissenschaft, um, the science of art, and the philosophy of the beautiful. He said, on the one hand, we see a science of art, only busying itself with actual works of art from the outside, arranging them in a history of art. That's what I tend to do. On the other hand, we see science abandoning itself 
on its own account to reflections on the beautiful and producing only something universal, irrelevant to the work of art in its peculiarity, in short, an abstract philosophy of the beautiful. It's this second abstract philosophy of the beautiful which is aesthetics. And you see what Hegel said about it, it's irrelevant to the work of art in its peculiarity. I find it very difficult to talk about works of art other than in particulars. <clears throat> and I want to share with you a, a, a memory I have going back ten years <clears throat> about an experience of the beautiful. And I'm telling you this story to suggest that an abstract philosophy of the beautiful is actually a very tricky thing to, to write. Um, I, I listened to a radio report on the news of four uh, oarsmen who were trying to row across the Atlantic. They were trying to break a record of 55 days that had been set by Norwegian rowers in the late 19th century for crossing the Atlantic, I think from Newfoundland to um, Great Britain. <clears throat> and they had rowed for 39 days and they were struck by a terrible storm and then a huge wave came and broke their boat in two and they were plunged in the water and they clambered onto a life raft and they were perilously exposed. <clears throat> 350 miles from the shore, in a storm-crossed sea, they must have been very cold, um, hungry, uh, thirsty, very frightened. And this is the report from a, one of the survivors, which I heard on the car radio, and I was so riveted by it, I pulled the car over to hear what he had to say. <clears throat> and he said, the highlight for me was the sight and sound of an RAF rimrod, nimrod flying in low across the water. I have never seen anything so beautiful in my life. Now, I can see you smiling and nodding. You know exactly what that man meant when he saw that nimrod. Um, he was hanging on to life by a thread, as we say. He saw that Nimrod and he knew he was going to live as opposed to drown and it was the most beautiful sight he'd ever seen. And if you remember those Nimrod planes, I'm afraid they no longer fly, they were converted from those comment, Comet airliners. Um, the first commercial jet air, airliners first designed in the 1940s. So they were very old um, airframes and they had that bulbous nose um, added to them for their radar equipment. They weren't beautiful aircraft. If you've seen them in an air show on the tarmac, you wouldn't have picked them out as a beautiful aircraft. But we all know exactly what that survivor meant when he said it, that aircraft was the most beautiful sight he'd seen in his life. Because the beautiful is not something that can be detached from a context and still exist. It is a relationship, and it's a relationship that exists at a particular time and place. And at that time and place, that was beautiful in a different context, it would not have been beautiful. So to construct an abstract philosophy of the beautiful, I think, is a challenge for the philosophers. <clears throat> now, my other guide um, in this um, talk, <laughs> investigating aesthetics, comes from a, a philosopher, R.G. Collingwood, um, who some of you know because you have read his Principles of Art, um, a book published in the 1930s and kept in print by Oxford University Press ever since. 
And in my book, I suggest that this is the book that um, Gombrich was alluding to without saying, any, without saying so when he opened the story of art with the sentence, there really is no such thing as art. Because Collingwood, in his Principles of Art, distinguished an art proper, to use his phrase, from everything else. And he devised the label craft to distinguish art proper from everything else. And the art proper is what Gombrich um, later chose to describe as art with a capital A, which he says has no existence. Um, so I'm not, in, uh, I'm not a supporter of Collingwood's philosophy of art. I'm, I favor Gombrich rather than Collingwood. But uh, he's also a historian of history. And this is a, a statement that he made in his autobiography, which I have found the most useful statement ever made by a philosopher about history. <clears throat> I, I live by it. <clears throat> um, Collingwood wrote, <clears throat> you cannot find out what a man means by simply studying his spoken or written statements. You must also know what the question was, a question in his own mind, and presumed by him to be in yours, to which the thing he has said or written was meant as an answer. Now, that is a profoundly helpful statement, I, I think. You can apply it to any historical document. You can certainly um, apply it to the Bible. Um, in fact, I was introduced to this statement by a wonderful scholar of the New Testament, um, Canon John Fenton, um, who wanted to explain why Mark's Gospel began with the baptism of Christ by St. John the Baptist. And he said, if you think it's just history, in other words, you put it in the category of true or false, um, you'll think well, that's just what happened. But if you think of it as a problem which needed a solution, the problem was, why did Jesus need to be baptized by St. John the Baptist? And this probably was an embarrassment to the first Christians, because why would the Son of God need that introduction? And so it needed to be dealt with. That was the problem for which the introduction to um, Mark's Gospel was a solution. And then you can trace it in the other Gospels and how they dealt with the same problem. So when I'm looking at these philosophers writing about beauty and art, I'm going to try and um, recover what the problem was which their statements are a solution for. <clears throat> so this is a talk about texts, books. Um, philosophers deal with words <coughs> rather than images. Um, as usual, it starts with Plato and Aristotle. I'm choosing the greater Hippias, which is his um, dialogue on the beautiful. It's not a particularly popular dialogue, but I think um, it's important. Um, Aristotle's um, poetics are a response to Plato. Um, so much of what Aristotle says is his comment on Plato. Um, we're jumping through the Middle Ages to the Renaissance. Cennino Cennini wrote a, a very well-known book on um, painting. He gives you the technique of tempera and fresco, the practicalities of it. <coughs> then a very important book, Longinus on the Sublime, written in late antiquity, um, but largely ignored as far as I know throughout the Middle Ages, and it really hit the big time when it was translated into French in 1674, and aesthetics, I think, begins with the response to Longinus on the Sublime. <coughs> Roger de Peel um, 
clearly had read Longinus in, in French translation, and he transferred Longinus's views to painting <coughs> and introduced, amongst other things, the modern notion of genius. It wasn't around before the late 1600s. <coughs> Um, Baumgarten, Alexander Baumgarten, introduced the word aesthetics to philosophy. Um, I think he also is responding to Longinus, and he came up with the word aesthetica for his unfinished book. Um, what he wrote um, isn't that significant for modern philosophers, <clears throat> but it was picked up on by Immanuel Kant, and the Critique of Judgment is the key text for understanding what um, philosophers say about um, visual art, though Kant is more addressing matters of beauty than visual art. Um, Winkelmann, <coughs> in between the two, um, he wrote this very influential History of the Art of Antiquity, which is famous for introducing the word art or rather the history of art, to a book title. Um, there was no history of art before Winkelmann wrote that book title. And when I was reading the book, I realized that it's more fundamental than that. Um, Winkelmann, <coughs> Winkelmann uses the word art as a shorthand for the fine arts, and in particular for sculpture. And that wasn't available for Vasari in the 16th century, and it wasn't available... Um, for writers in the 17th and early 18th century. Winkelmann gives us the word art as a shorthand for sculpture and the visual arts. <coughs> um, in the early 19th century, Hegel, we've already mentioned, his lectures on aesthetics hugely important. Um, as a German Romantic philosopher, he writes quite clearly, or at least... Um, the lecture notes that were written up by his devoted pupil are quite easy to read, but they are prolix. Um, there's an awful lot of them, and um, you feel a little bit worn down by the time you got to the end of the two modern English volumes. <clears throat> and lastly, of course, we have Collingwood, who provides a, a modern digest to aesthetics in his Principles of Art, um, depending very much on Canton Hegel and other philosophers who've written in between. So those are our references. <clears throat> Starting with Greater Hippias. Now this image clearly is um, Albrecht Dürer's wonderful engraving of Melancholia. Melancholia 1 he called it um, in 1514. Um, and this is a particular work of art. It's a great work of art, but we're not going to look at it as a work of art because we are studying aesthetics this afternoon, in this lecture at any rate. We're looking at it as an illustration of a, a philosoph philosophical text. Because when I was reading um, Hippias Major, Greater Hippias, Plato's Dialogue, about ten years ago, I kept been reminded of Dürer's engraving. And it got to the point when I thought, Dürer must have read the Greater Hippias. And we had um, study days such as this, um, ten years ago in this, in this department. It was to coincide with the British Museum Dürer exhibition. And I was responsible for the programming in those days. And I tried to get four speakers on Dürer. Couldn't get a fourth, so I put myself in for the last one. It was going to be the Joker. And I was going to tell people how I had read um, Greater Hippias with this Dürer in mind, and it seemed to be illustrating the Greater Hippias. But in fact, um, it turned out that it couldn't have been. That was going to be my punchline. 
Unfortunately, the more I got into it, the more it seemed to work. And this is dated 1514, and I discovered that Dürer's great friend, Willibald Pirkheimer, had acquired the first Greek text of Plato's complete works the previous year, 1513. And he had already got the Latin um, translation of um, Plato's complete works. And there's a table of contents in the first printed great edition of Plato's complete works. And in the table of contents, the Platonic dialogues are mentioned with their subtitles. And the subtitles is very clear. Um, Hippias Major, or Hippias Meiston, et Peritoukalou, or On the Beautiful. Um, I think that um, Dürer was wanting to find out what the beautiful was, and this is an illustration of Plato's text. Um, the thesis was published ten years ago in the Art Bulletin. As far as I know, no scholar has taken this on board. It's been pretty well neglected for ten years, but no one has been able to undermine it either. So, I'm going to quickly go over um, Plato's dialogue on the beautiful and refer to the image simply as an illustration. You don't need the image clearly to understand the text, and you can get the image just by Googling um, Dura and Melancholia. You'll get lots of these images. Um, the narrative is set in Athens, um, late 5th century, and Hippias is the ambassador from Elis, which was the city that organized the Olympic Games. So he was a very distinguished man, and he was um, a sophist, a teacher of arete, whom the word that we are interpreting as quality. Um, this probably is an early dialogue, and... Platon is not particularly keen on it because Socrates isn't a very attractive character in this dialogue. He's openly sarcastic and he's um, mocking um, his distinguished um, visitor and um, leading him into traps and verbal tricks. It's not a very edifying spectacle. And for example, he, he um, mocks um, Hippias for, for charging fees to his students. Um, academics today, of course, work for free, so that's a very shocking thing to do. <clears throat> um, anyway, um, he discovers that um, Hippias has been teaching um, young men about Arete and the beautiful. And it reminds Socrates that a man had asked him what the beautiful was, and he couldn't answer. So now he can ask Hippias, and it'll be an easy task for Hippias to say, not what is beautiful, but what the beautiful is. Horti esti tokalon. Well, um, Hippias comes up with a number of examples. Um, a beautiful maiden is um, beautiful. Um, no, that won't do. That's a particular. Um, Socrates wants a universal. Um, a mare can be beautiful. A pot can be beautiful. Um, and Socrates replies to these examples, all those things are ugly compared to the gods, who are really beautiful. You have to have a definition which includes the gods. So Hippias tries gold. Gold is the beautiful. Or the appropriate is the beautiful. And... Socrates is then allowed to lose his rag, as we might say. 
And he says to the poor Hippias, are you not able to remember that I asked for the beautiful itself, to kalon autor, by which everything to which it is added has the property of being beautiful, both stone and stick and man and God and every act and every learning, banti matemati. For what I am asking is this, man, what is the beautiful itself? And I cannot make you hear what I say any more than if you were a stone sitting beside me, and a millstone at that, having neither ears nor brain. Now this is what um, reminded me of Dürer's Prince, because there is a millstone. And nobody, a lot of huge literature on this print, no one has been able to explain satisfactorily what a millstone is doing there. And it's got a putto on it, it's a little child um, who could conceivably represent eyes and ears, his eyes don't seem to be open. So with that in mind, um, I carried on reading. Um, having given up on Hippias, Socrates then makes suggestion suggestions as to what is beautiful. He suggests what is useful might be the beautiful. Um, rather like Vitruvius's um, definition of architecture, it has to be useful. Well, if we look at the ground surrounding this figure, this is a figure of geometry by the way, she's holding a pair of dividers and she's got a book which is probably Euclid's Elements of Geometry. Um, around geometry's feet you have all sorts of utensils. Um, identified have been uh, the nozzle of bellows, nails, a straight edge, sword, a plane, a molding board, pincers, inkwell with pen holder, and a hammer. Now these are all useful things. Um, Socrates then is able to demonstrate that that is not enough for us, uh, a definition of the beautiful. Then he suggests that power is the beautiful. And um, if you notice, hip, um, Geometry has keys hanging from her belt and a bag of money. And there's a drawing by Dürer himself which has keys and money and Dürer has written against it, keys mean power, um, money means wealth. So he's illustrated power and um, he's illustrated gold as well. Um, that won't do. Um, and then I think um, um, Perkheimer, um, who must be Dürer's translation, picked up on the um, phrase panti matemati, every learning. Um, in the Latin translation, that comes across, I think, of uh, um, the word disciplinabile. Um, I'm, I'm remembering that from, from memory, so I may not be accurate on the, on the Latin. But it's not the word mathematics. Um, the ancient Greek, matemati, was a wider subject than just mathematics to us. But it's not in the Latin, so when he read the Greek text for the first time, the first ever publication of the Greek text, finding that word all mathematics must have been a revelation for Dürer and Perkheimer because they thought the key to beauty is in mathematics. And then he would have turned to um, an important book on mathematics by Luca Pacioli, a Franciscan um, mathematician whom he might have met in Italy when Dürer was in Italy, who, who might have taught him perspective. And Pacioli says that um, mathematics are the foundation and ladder which give access to every other science. And in the background there you can see a ladder. Um, 
then uh, Luca Pacioli goes on to say that um, mathematics is about number, weight, and measure. Well, you've got a, a panel of magic numbers. They're magic because they add up to 34, whichever direction you go in. You've got scales for weight, and you've got measure. This is a, a, an hourglass measuring time. Um, other applications of mathematics, um, Pacioli says, um, fire proves gold and mathematics proves the intellect. It's the testing um, discipline for the intellect. And on the left there you can see a little crucible um, of coals and a fire, a goldsmith crucible for gold. So that's testing um, metal just as mathematics tests the in intellect. And so it goes on. But at the end, as always in uh, Plato's Socratic dialogues, it's inconclusive. They can't define the beautiful. And the dialogues ends with um, Socrates saying, that man, and he means his daimon, his inner genius, would be very disappointed um, that we don't know what the uh, beautiful is, we can't define the beautiful. He will say, how do you know either who produced a discourse beautifully or not, or anything else whatsoever, when you are ignorant of the beautiful. And when you are in such a condition, do you think it is better for you to be alive or dead? I think Dürer must have been bitterly disappointed to reach the end of the dialogue and not to have learned what the beautiful was. And with geometry, the figure of geometry, I think he's expressing that disappointment. Socrates' disappointment, Hippias' disappointment, that they have struggled and not been able to um, come up with a definition for the beautiful itself. And it leaves us that irregular polygon, doesn't it? <coughs> now, polygons have a place in um, Plato's philosophy. If you read the, Tibet, the Timaeus, which is his cosmology, um, he re relates four of the five regular solids. There are only five regular solids. Four of them he relates to earth, air, fire, and water. Um, so the cube, which you see on the left here, he identifies that with earth. Um, gosh, I've forgotten what this is. Is it a... Which one? Icosahedron, that'll do as far as I'm concerned. Um, that's water. Fire is whatever this one is. And the pyramid, can I call it the pyramid? Um, that is, I beg its pardon, that is air and that's fire. You can see I'm not a mathematician. But it leaves the dodecahedron. And in the Timaeus, um, Plato rather lamely suggested that the dodecahedron represent torpan, the everything. Um, and you can see how Plato thought in geometric terms. These are the ideas, the simple, regular um, shapes, which are the beautiful. And he wants to, to think of similar shapes behind the flux of appearances. But the dodecahedron is left over. 
Aristotle comes along and he has a different cosmology. He notes that in the world of, the, of appearances, earth, air, fire and water are divided between things that go down and things that go up. Earth and water naturally sink down, um, fire and air naturally go up. So it's the characteristic of the elements to go up or down. Um, above the moon, however, um, things don't go up and down, they go round and round. So they must be, depend on a different element, and this must be the fifth element, the quintessence. And that is um, Socrates, sorry, that's Aristotle's innovation. Luca Pacioli, the Franciscan, writing in 1509, this text, um, he called his text um, De Divina Proportione, the Divine Proportion, he conflated Aristotle and Plato, as so many Renaissance scholars did, and he associated those four regular solids with earth, air, fire, and water, but the dodecahedron he associated with the quintessence, Plato and Aristotle's quintessence. And this was the heavenly um, regular solid, um, the divine regular solid, and you use the... Um, what we call the golden section, the divine proportion, to make a pentagon, and the dodecahedron is made up of 12 pentagons. That is heavenly beauty, that is the beautiful itself. And geometry here can't get it right. And I suggest that is the point of Dürer's irregular solid. He's struggled um, to define the beautiful. He's illustrating Socrates' struggle to define the beautiful, and his failure is represented by an irregular dodecahedron. So, um, that is the sort of problem you get when you try and put something which is pre-verbal or non-verbal <coughs> um, into words. And I remind you of Plato's um, statement in The Republic, he wants to banish Homer and the poets um, because people say they know everything, um, arete, um, excellence and badness, and the beautiful and the good, um, but they have knowledge and he can demonstrate that they don't have knowledge. <clears throat> Aristotle um, then writes his poetics, or he leaves us his poetics, his account of poetry. He doesn't banish the poets. He doesn't leave them outside the city gate like um, Plato and Socrates does. Um, he is more of a scientist. He describes things that take place in the here and now. He assumes that um, ancient tragedy has reached its mature form. So all he has to do is describe the structure of an ancient tragedy, and he's come up with a, a description of poetics. And his description, I won't show you that yet, um, is something which you're familiar with, even if you don't associate it immediately with um, Aristotle. Um, in the poetics, uh, Aristotle says, Tragedy is a division of ep epic, the most elevated poetic genre, since it treats with people better than ourselves. Comedy represents people who are worse. This is what Aristotle's great knack is. He, in, a, in a few words, he can distinguish one thing from another. Plot, he says, muthos, the myth, 
is central to tragedy, which is not a narrative like the Iliad and Odyssey, but a representation, a mimesis, and a representation not of people but of action and of life. Through pity and fear, it accomplishes the purgation, the catharsis of those emotions. The audience's feelings are engaged by the transformation, metabasis, of good fortune to adversity. Um, Aristotle analyzes the structure of ancient tragedy, and this is what he writes up in his book, and this accurate description is a way that philosophers can deal with subjects such as poetry. What happened, of course, is that over time, um, Aristotle's description of current practice of a tragedy became a prescription for what a tragedy should look like. It became a set of rules. And in particular, in the 16th century, when it was translated into Italian um, by Ludovico Castelvetro, um, he titled, entitled his book La Poetica di Aristotele Vulgarizzato, translated into the Vulgate, um, then Aristotle seemed to be giving rules for how you should write your, your tragedies, rules for poetry. Um, <clears throat> this is what Aristotle says in a different context about art. Um, art is produced when many notions of experience, of, uh, sorry, when many notions of experience I'm getting muddled up now. How do I pass this? Thank you. Art is produced when, from many notions of experience, a single universal judgment is formed with regard to like objects. Lots of like objects, you have one universal deriving from it. Experience <coughs> is knowledge of particulars, but art of universals. Knowledge of universals becomes art. <coughs> so a body of knowledge is an art, what we might call a discipline. And this is what's passed on to the Middle Ages. The liberal arts, <coughs> the arts which free citizens, liberal citizens, um, have the time to cultivate, the trivium and the quadrivium, are bodies of knowledge. They can be put in books. And it is in monastic libraries that these liberal arts are preserved throughout the Middle Ages. And I want to briefly um, quote this rather charming passage from Cennino Cennini, even though he's writing about painting. Um, Cennini is trying to make painting responsible by giving it not so much a theory, but a theology. And he starts off by saying, Adam, who's been um, expelled from the Garden of Eden, recognizing the fault he had committed and been endowed so nobly by God as the root beginning and father of us all, realized from his scienza that it was necess necessary to find a means of living by his hands. And so he began with the spade and Eve with spinning. Adam delved and Eve span. Many arts provided for their many arts providing from the, for their necessity followed, which differed one from, from the other, since some were and are possessed of more or less scienza. So they could not all share the same rank, since scienza is the most worthy. Some arts are close descendants of scienza, requiring a grounding in it, combined with manual ability, and such as the arts called painting, which requires imagination and manual ability. So even though he's writing a book about painting, and he is a painter, he values scienza, which is the Latin word for knowledge. 
knowledge has a primacy in, throughout the Middle Ages, and above all, knowledge written in books, and preferably books surviving from antiquity. Now, that was going to be blown apart when Longinus's treatise on the sublime was translated into French. Um, this is a cover, a title page of um, Longinus's text, Traduit du Grec, directly from the Greek um, by Longin, you can see there. Um, the Greek text is Perihupsos, on loftiness. It had been translated into Latin as on the sublime, and the French, and subsequently we adopted the Latin version of Perihupsos. Um, Longinus, as I say, was, is a late antique work of literary criticism, um, written perhaps in the early centuries of the Christian era. And early on, um, he writes, we must begin by raising the question as to whether there is an art to sublimity or emotion. I'm following the Lerb translation, um, which I showed you with the green cover earlier on. Whether there is an art to sublimity or emotion. For some think those are wholly at fault who try to bring su such matters under systematic rules. Genius, it is said, is born and does not come from teaching, and the only art for producing it is nature. Works of natural genius, so people think, are spoiled and utterly demeaned by being reduced to the dry bones of rule and precept. If you follow rules, if you do what Aristotle tells you when you're writing your plays, um, you're not going to achieve the sublime. And the sublime is what um, Longinus is writing about, and he says this is the important thing to achieve. However, when you look at the Greek, you realize that this is a translation, and translations are always compromises. Um, Longinus writes, this is an alternative translation, we must begin by raising the question as to whether there is an art to loftiness or profundity. Hupsos e bathos. I think Longinus is offering us two extremes. For some think that those who try to reduce it to technical training are wholly deceived. A great nature, to megalofue, they say, is born gifted and not formed by teaching. Works of natural ability, tafusika erga, natural works, so they think, are, are spoiled and utterly demeaned by the dry, impoverishing rules of art. And you look at the Greek word, which we've translated here as the rules of art, and it is technologias, technology. Techne is art, Greek word for art. Logos is the word for words. So um, an account of an art um, is... Um, a technology is an account of an art. It's what you would read in a book. Um, Longinus refers to his own book as technology. So on the one hand, you've got arts that can be put in a manual. You can write them up in a book. And on the other hand, loftiness and profundity, the sublime, cannot be pinned down in that way. And here I think you have the modern distinction between art aiming at the sublime, and technology, which is a manual of instruction. I don't think it existed before this. You look back at the previous translation, uh, and you don't get that. Um, 
technology um, is disguised by the dry bones of rule and precept. It introduces the word genius, and at this early date, genius simply meant a spirit. It's the Latin word for a spirit. Um, you have to be very careful um, translating an ancient text, not to modernize it to the point that you lose its essential meaning. Um, before this, you had the liberal arts, the, the um, things that you learned at school and university that we've just mentioned, and you had the mechanical arts, things that you did with your hands. Now we've got a new definition, a new distinction, between what is going to be the fine arts and technology. Arts that can be put in a book and arts that can't. Um, Longinus carries on the sublime, and I'm using a, an 18th century translation here, is a certain eminence or perfection of language, and the greatest writers, both in verse and prose, have by this alone obtained the price of glory, and filled all time with their renown. For the great nature not only persuades, but even throws an audience into transport, into ecstasy. It's probably what you're feeling at the moment. <laughs> the marvellous always works with more surprising force than that which barely, barely persuades or delights. But the, but the sublime, when seasonably addressed, with a rapid force of lightning, has borne down all before it. Once fine artists had the prospect of achieving the sublime and sweeping an audience or their public along, um, and putting them into ecstasy, surely this is what every fine artist would want to do. And later on, towards the end of the treatise, Longinus writes, those other inferior, inferior beauties show their authors to be men, but the sublime makes near the approaches, near approaches to the height of God. What is correct and faultless comes off barely without censure, but the grand and lofty command admiration. What can I add further? One exalted and sublime sentiment in those noble authors makes ample amends for their defects. Now, I think this had a great impact on the way um, English writers of, um, about Shakespeare and about French drama um, interpreted Shakespeare. Shakespeare made lots of faults according to Aristotle's rules in the Poetics. Um, reading Longinus, they suddenly realized that Shakespeare's making those faults um, meant that he was above them. It wasn't that he was inept, it was he, he was aspiring to the sublime. And the person who does that needs a new name. And this is where Roger de Peel um, comes in. Um, Roger de Peel had um, lived in Venice and he was keen on Venetian painting. And he started to write books about painting. Um, he wrote a book on Dialogue sur le Colori, and that was very um, important. And a second book, which you can see here, Le Traité du Peintre Parfait. And Roger de Peel had to tackle the rules of painting. <clears throat> um, in the Florentine tradition, drawing had a priority in producing a painting. You learnt your perspective and you learnt to draw 
um, with crisp outlines and your painting was in effect colouring in shapes that you had defined with your drawing. And Michelangelo was the supreme example of this. This is Michelangelo's Doni Tondo, um, about 155 or 10, something like that. And you can see that it's in a complex, uh, the, the Madonna's in a complex foreshortened position, and all her features are crisply outlined. It's almost like sculpture itself. So this is the Florentine approach to painting with drawing as the, the priority. Um, the Venetians, on the other hand, um, above all exemplified with the work of Titian, had learned the new technique of oil paint on canvas. And oil paint, as opposed to um, tempera or fresco, could paint over what you had painted before. So you didn't have to define crisply a shape and then fill it in with color. You could roughly outline the shape and gradually give it definition, painting over what you had painted before. And instead of the overall shape being the unit of the um, painting, the brush stroke becomes the unit of the painting. I don't know if you can see it. This is Henri Quatre um, falling in love with Marie de Medici or with her picture. Um, he's smitten, you can see, completely besotted. Um, and um, this is Rubens who painted like Titian and Rubens is building it up with individual brush strokes. And in the French Academy of the 17th century, there was this debate between color and drawing. And should they follow the official line, the, the academic line, of making a priority of drawing, starting with perspective and crisp outlines, or they, should they um, adopt a coloristic approach? And Roger de Peel had lived in Venice. He was a champion of color. So when he read Longinus um, saying that you could abandon rules and you achieve the sublime when you abandoned rules, this was exactly what he needed to battle with um, the academic championing of disegno. So this is Roger de Peel in 1699. Genius, this is the first time we encounter this word applied to visual art as opposed to just being a spirit, le, le genie. Genius is the first thing we must suppose in a painter. For this inner light of the spirit, which is nothing other than genius, showing us always the shortest and easiest route, and invariably guiding us happily, both as to means and ends. The painter or the poet who followed Longinus in aspiring for the sublime and discarding the rules of past practice or the rules taught in academies or taught by books um, acquired his new label, that of a genius, at this point. Key moments in the history of um, our understanding of art. <coughs> Um, a generation later, um, Alexander Baumgarten picks up on this debate. There's a large literature in 18, early 18th century Paris about these matters, and he decides that, um, I'm going to try and quote him accurately now, there's a rational perfection, and, there's, um, and that's identified by reason, and there's a different perfection in perceived phenomena which is not rational. The whole point is that it's not rational, and that is what strikes us as beauty. So we have rational perfection in mathematics, in logic, 
um, in this field of symbolic notation, and we have an aesthetic perfection which we which strikes us as beauty, which cannot be reduced to reason, to verbal formulations. And that established the um, philosophical discipline of aesthetics. Um, Winkelmann then wrote his History of the Art of Antiquity, Geschichte der Kunst des Altertums, which you see here, introduces the word art as a shorthand for sculpture and for the visual arts. Um, Kant comes along, picks up on all these ideas, plus other texts which we haven't got time to look at. This is Critique <coughs> der Urteilskraft, his Critique of Judgment. 1790, and it's here that we find set out for the first time so many of our modern assumptions about art. Um, I'm obviously having to paraphrase because we've got very little time, but um, one of the things which upset Kant is that people have different, different judgments of taste, and we might say different judgments of quality. Some people like this and some people like that. And the 18th century view is that there should be a, a, an objective taste, if I can put it that way, which educated people should all agree on. And that didn't seem to be the case, so this was the problem for which Kant was seeking a solution. And he does it with statements such as this. He distinguishes the agreeable from the good from a judgment of taste. The agreeable refers to the pleasure we feel in our senses. <clears throat> we incline towards these gratifying sensations, so we have an interest in them. These pleasures do not engage with the concept, so they are subjective. Everyone is judge of his own taste. <clears throat> you like <clears throat> sugar in your coffee? I don't. You like plain chocolate, I like milk chocolate, or the other way around. Everyone is their own judge. That's the agreeable. A liking for the good is also interested, but it is brought under the principles of reason by the concept of a purpose. We are concerned with the continuing existence of some good. Our judgment is colored by our interest, so is not free. Um, we see this beautiful painting and we want to own it and it's very valuable and it colors our perception. We think it's even better than it perhaps is. Um, objectively. <clears throat> and lastly, his judgment of taste, um, he claims is merely contemplative. So it is entirely disinterested and free. Unlike the good, taste is not based on concepts in the understanding. So it is the dis disinterested and free judgment that becomes the aesthetic judgment. The judgment that everyone should agree on because you've got you don't bring your own agenda to judging it. Um, line and color and pattern, if all personal interest is removed, we should be able to agree on that. And Kant goes on to introduce many new things. He borrows from the French literature the genie, and he uses the French term for genius. <laughs> it didn't exist in German, um, or at least um, the German um, Geist is the spirit, um, just as the Latin genius is the spirit, but he doesn't use that, he uses the French word genie. Um, and Kant writes, genius is a talent for producing something for which no determinate rule can be given. Hence, the foremost property of genius must be originality. 
Now, what a portentous statement that was. Um, we can disagree on whether this painting or sculpture or architecture or building is beautiful or not, but it's much easier to agree whether it's original or not. <clears throat> Um, from this point, it was much easier for fine artists to go for originality rather than to go for what was beautiful and good. And over time, you eventually sacrifice what was beautiful and good for the sake of originality. And originality now is the unthinking criteria of praise. You praise something as very original, even if it's horrible. Um, if it's very original, this is plus, plus, plus. <coughs> Um, now, Kant realizes there's some problems here. Nonsense also can be original, so the products of genius must also be models. They must be exemplary. Other people must pick up on your works, your original works, and they should um, follow them. They should start a tradition. So they are less of a genius than you are because they haven't come up with original works. Um, Genius itself cannot describe or indicate scientifically how it brings about its products, and it is rather as nature that it gives the rule. It cannot rationally explain um, its creations. And lastly, nature, through genius, prescribes the rule not to science, but to art. And this, only, this also only insofar as the art is to be fine art. Um, Genius is the distinctive activity of someone producing fine art. We no longer restrict genius in that sense. Um, you know, we think of Isaac Newton and Einstein as geniuses. Um, Kant would exclude those because they're scientists and they should be able to explain rationally um, their um, discoveries, their mathematical formulations. This potent um, philosophical statement over time became not a description of what fine artists do, it became a prescription for what they should do. You should be original, you should be exemplary, and you shouldn't have to explain what you do to anyone. Um, Hegel uh, comes along a generation later. Um, these are the two um, volumes that you could take for your summer holiday reading. <coughs> um, he introduces a number of new ideas. We've already seen his distinction between Kunstwissenschaft, the science of particularities, and the philosophy of fine art. Um, he also introduces his very potent concept of the, um, the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. He is a Neoplatonic philosopher. He goes for Plato's ideas, which he sees being realized over history. The spirit is um, manifesting itself over history. It, what, you, you have to understand the background of Hegel's thinking for it to make sense. But it's an important statement he makes here. Further, every work of art belongs to its own time, its own people, its own environment, and depends on particular historical and other ideas and purposes. Consequently, scholarship in the field of art demands a vast wealth of historical and, and indeed very detailed facts. Since the individual nature of the work of art is related to something individual and necessarily re requires detailed knowledge for its understanding and explanation. This was the task of the new generation 
Garden of Art Historians, first chair of art history established in Berlin, I think in 1840 or something like that. Um, in Oxford it happened um, 20 years ago or something, very recently. Um, this is an important statement because um, Hegel is telling us that in the Middle Ages, in the, in the 12th century, you have to judge the creations of the 12th century on its own terms, not against some classical ideal or any other ideal um, of a particular um, later period. You, you, can't, you mustn't work anachronistically. And I end with um, this figure. <laughs> This is a photograph which is all over the place on the internet. If you Google um, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance of Robert M. Persig, this is the photograph that you will come up with. Um, I've tried to trace it. Um, it's, it has been attributed to David Brill and to the National Geographic. And I've been in correspondence with the Na National Geographic and they claim not to have any record of it and I can't um, trace David Brill, so um, I want to show you the photograph because I think it's a brilliant photograph. Um, Robert Persig, in his um, reintroduction to quality to contemporary discourse, Arete, the concept that um, Socrates and Plato made inaccessible to us because they wanted to define it. And you can't define quality any more than you can define beauty or the, the beauty of your beloved's face or the beauty which has to include a Nimrod aircraft as well as your beloved's face. That's as big that your definition has to be. Um, Persig is the person who's told us that it is a pre-verbal judgment. And it's a judgment that unites subject and object, um, the perceiver and the perceived, and it's the relationship that beauty is describing. So you, you can't expect to, to pin it down. And in my judgment, that there's only been two useful critics of um, Plato, really profound critics of Plato. The first was Aristotle, um, who changed a top-down version of his metaphysics to a bottom-up version. That's simply a different way of approaching. And the second, for my money, is Robert M. Persig, who said um, quality is not a problem as long as you don't try and pin it down. We all know what a good cup of coffee is. We all know what um, a nice bar of chocolate is when you're hungry and uh, an sea rescue plane means when you're um, marooned uh, and tossed about on the waves. It's only when you try and pin it down that it disappears. Um, having returned um, quality to um, intellectual discourse, I think a lot of the problems which philosophical aesthetics were trying to address simply are not problems any longer. Um, we don't need that baggage. We can refer to a particular work of art um, against the tradition in which it, from which it emerged. <clears throat> and that is going to be the subject of our last talks, our last talk this afternoon, um, Quality in the Canon. <clears throat> Thank you very much. <clears throat>